Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, March 9th at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing. Our panel topic today is Office to Housing Conversion, and our panelists are Daniel Curtin, the California Conference of Carpenters, Dan Dunmoyer of the California Building Industry Association, Laura Foote of Yimby Action, Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard, and Jeffrey Roth, the Legislative Director for Senator Anna Caballero. Our moderator for this panel is Ashley Zavala of KCRA News. We'll go ahead and get started in just one second, but first, let's thank our sponsors for the event. Support for Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Weideman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. All right, well, as our panelists sit down, I'm gonna introduce each one of you. And after I do this, I'm just gonna have you each give a brief you know, introduction about yourself, a little bit about yourself and what you have to do with housing. So first, uh, Danny Curtin uh, with the California Conference of Carpenters. Dan Dunmoyer, am I saying that right? Okay, uh, with the California Building Industry Association. Laura Foote with EMB Action. And Jeffrey Roth, the Legislative Director for Senator Ana Caballero. And uh, yeah, so let's start with you. Okay, um, this is on. Yes. First, I want to thank um, Tim, uh, Tim Foster and Capital Weekly for inviting me. And I also want to thank him for the little bio that they wrote for us because he characterized uh, sort of the situation in a way that hasn't been done in the Capitol uh, lately. And it's a lot about the Capitol bubble, which we'll get into. But it says uh, my name, et cetera, but a key player in a housing conversation, I appreciate that marking out more nuanced positions that sometimes put them at odds with their labor compadres, the state building trades and construction trades. So those of you in the Capitol know that that is the most uh, sophisticated expression of that conflict. That, uh, I don't want really to call it a conflict. It is a policy disagreement, but uh, you would think it was somewhere prior to the Civil War's uh, tension levels, especially in the Capitol and we can get into all this later, they are highly sensitive to it. But outside the Capitol, it's like, what is going on? Or is, can you, somebody please explain it? So okay. We'll get into the bill Yeah, itself. Jeffrey, did you want to share a little bit about yourself? And Great, Mark Scanning, yeah. keeping it spicy uh, <laughs> just after 9 o'clock. Um, hello, everyone. Echoing Danny's sentiments about um, the gratitude to be invited on this panel. Um, of course, my name is Jeffrey Roth, Legislative Director for Senator Ana Caballero. She represents a wide swath of the Central Valley, including Fresno, Madera, and Merced counties. Um, I am here in my own capacity, but of course, well informed by a lot of the work that uh, she has done. Um, I uh, handle housing issues, which has been a huge priority for the Senator, in which she has a tremendous amount of experience. Um, and so uh, my first foray into this world really has uh, uh, all to do with this topic, the <laughs> conversion of commercial uh, property into real estate, uh, when she originally introduced SB 1385 three years ago, which would then become SB 6, which was signed into law uh, last year. 
Awesome. Um, I'm Laura Foote. I'm the executive director of Yimby Action. That's Yimby, yes, in my backyard. Um, and we advocate for building a lot more housing. We believe California is suffering from a chronic housing shortage and that we have a lot of policies that are keeping us from addressing the needs of Californians. Um, one thing that I think is kind of important to understand about the pro-housing movement, other than we're incredibly loud, um, is that uh, we're kind of a consumer advocacy organization. Um, there have been, in the, in the housing discourse, we've had the people who build housing in the discourse, we've had, um, you know, the elected officials hearing from people who are worried that they might live next door to some housing. Um, and now we're seeing more and more the voices of people who need to live in housing joining that conversation, along with the tenants' rights activists, along with the carpenters, along with this kind of, this important to have all of these different voices when we're talking about the needs of California and how are we going to address this chronic grinding housing shortage. Um, so hopefully the Yimby movement can bring some force to the conversation. Okay. And Dan? Thanks, Ashley. And I too want to thank Tim Foster for including me in this discussion with Capital Weekly. Dan Dunmoyer, <clears throat> I head up the California Building Industry Association. We're the association that represents the people who build the homes. So we represent from start to finish, we say from ideation. So <clears throat> you see a piece of land, 25, later, 25 years later, we build on it because that's how long it takes in California on average. Um, my role in this is to oversee the advocacy and the charitable side of the organization. My background is in the legislature. Uh, advocacy, and I mentioned this on a national and global basis because I'll do some comparative analysis about California and its unique approach to housing, which is completely unique. And the last role is serving for Governor Schwarzenegger's cabinet secretary. And I only mention that because I spent a lot of time trying to build stuff, and I learned a lot about CEQA, which I'll touch on as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Okay, so we're talking office to housing conversion. Of uh, The first question, what is that, and is it as easy as it sounds? Whoever wants to take it first. Uh, nothing's easy, so let's start with that. Building anything is pretty complicated, pretty tough. Office conversion is really more from my perspective uh, 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 what we need to do for the cities. It's an important housing conversation, but it's really more important for revitalizing cities. It's a small piece, uh, and I don't want to diminish that in any way, but it's a small piece of the housing crisis, particularly the affordable housing crisis, which is really the big, big piece of the problem. Uh, but it is a piece. We really support the idea. You've got to revitalize the cities as, as the you know, work situation changes. So it's going to be tough, mostly because it's not cheap. It's very hard to put affordable homes into these buildings because it's not cheap, but it's doable. Uh, Danny, your comment about living in the Sacramento bubble on this issue, I, I, to me it seems like it's going to be tremendously easy to do this work. Um, but of course, I'm not on the ground building uh, the units. But you know, a lot of the conversation around this issue that I've been focused on with Senator Caballero has to deal with, um, you know, the dead and dying strip malls that plague uh, rural parts of the state. And, you know, as a result of these uh, retail spaces unable to keep up with uh, lack of, you know, commercial demand, a lot of times these big box, you know, retail stores or other small, uh, you know, commercial enterprises are the first to go and shutter their doors. So when you drive throughout the Central Valley, it's not uncommon to see a strip mall that's completely vacant or barely surviving. And, and so I think when you consider that landscape, converting 
those parcels to housing is probably going to be significantly less of a challenge than if you look at, say, what San Francisco is struggling with, the massive uh, commercial vacancies in their high-rise you know, towers. That, com that conversion is you know, an entirely different beast uh, to battle. So I think it's going to depend on where it's built um, and the parameters that we put in place to make it easy or, or more challenging to do so. But, but this one, I, I don't want to interrupt and you can deal with it as well. This is office conversion. It's a very different animal than the strip mall type issues, the, uh, you know, the box store issues. That was largely dealt with, I think, through AB 2011, which you'll hear about later. So. Okay. Yeah, I think the part, I, I, and I totally think, you know, as somebody who's in the politics of it, the part that's easy, knock on wood, please, you know, don't quote me later, <laughs> should be the politics. Um, that it's sort of a no-brainer right. that if we have empty offices that are already downtown, that are already near transit, that already have a lot of the infrastructure that people complain hasn't yet been built, it, it should be a politically easy thing to just allow people to convert office into housing. There are a lot of uh, like hard costs associated with it. So when you build an office building, you put the water in a different place than when you build a home, the elevator, the floor plans. So it is like very expensive to convert often office buildings into housing. Um, there's these like dual staircase problems and the old office buildings don't comply with the new building codes with the homes. And so there's there are sort of these like hard costs that you can't get around. What we can do is change the financial dynamics with regards to the incredible costs we associate with permitting and making the process unpredictable and the extra fees and things we put on top and, and sort of the disincentivizing we do right now for housing. And so th that's the part that government can control a bit more. We, we can't control the hard costs of like the water is in the wrong part of the building. Um, that the carpenters can control, which I'm very excited about. Um, you know, but we can't necessarily control um, what uh, we what we can do is reduce the costs, reduce um, you know maybe spread the fees out over a longer period of time, which is what our bill does, um, all in an effort to make these projects more feasible so that they're more likely to happen. Um, and in a city like San Francisco, where we're seeing about a forty percent vacancy rate in our downtown, it's a it's a real you know problem for the city, even just beyond uh, the problem of not having enough housing. There's also then this added problem people see of of more vacant downtown towns, which is a real opportunity um, that we can bring more life back to these cities by just getting out of the way and allowing more of them to becoming housing. Um, I'm hoping politically uh, you're right and it's easy. Like everyone, like, knock on wood, put good juju into the air. And when I say easy, I guess I, I think just from an outsider's perspective of, oh, here's a building that's already in place. Let's just put some bedrooms in it and call right. it a day. But I know that that's not the case. And we will get to those challenges in a second. But Dan, I'll pose the same question to you. Office to housing, is it as easy as it sounds? It's, I love what Laura said. I'm in agreement with all the panelists. It's expensive. It's Politically, hopefully, yes. You're used to having cars there, buildings there, so hopefully neighbors won't say, wow, you can have housing there. You probably have less traffic because if you had a big strip mall, a big commercial building where you had people driving in and out at one time and leaving at one time, you have more congestion where if you live there, you might not even leave your place. You might not even drive. So there's some really positive things from a neighborhood perspective, but everyone said it's so all say, let's take this room right here, turn this into a place to live 
where's the water, where's the kitchen, where's the toilet? Now there's a toilet down the hall, but this is in Europe. People don't like to go down the hall to use the bathroom. Certainly don't want to shower in a communal shower when they're paying. We're saying this starts at about a million and a half in the urban core for a two bedroom, one bath condo. That's what our price point is when we look at conversion. It's actually sometimes easier to demolish the building and start over than to try to, how do you move these pillars? This is a beautiful room, but look at the superstructure. And so that it's the price issue. But for CBA, we're a housing for all organization. So we don't have problems building expensive housing, but what we're told by the political leaders and actually what sells is attainable housing, which means five to six or 700,000 in California, not a million and a half. So Urban Core, Google, Cisco, these guys work in San Francisco. We think this will work well because people make 600,000 a year. Uh, well, you know, we're not sure if this works in Fresno. And so that's part of the equation is how do you cost this out? Um, but we're excited about it because it adds another tool in the toolbox to hopefully change a dying neighborhood into a living community. Okay, and that is a perfect transition into this discussion about the prospects of this. Before we talk about the challenges, let's talk about maybe the good things that could come with this type of project. So how many units are out there right now, or, or I guess how many office buildings are out there in California that could that could um, be turned into housing? And also, would this make a dent in the state's housing production goals? Whoever, okay. actually, Dan, let's start with you, because we've gone to you last, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, for us, if you build another housing unit, it's a dent. Uh, it's a small dent. But um, for us, there's, there's scores and scores, if not thousands, of buildings that can be explored for this option. Now, the question is, do they pencil? So that's what we do. So I talked to one of our builders this morning and said, hey, 2011, are you using it? Yeah, we're going to try to use it in San Jose. And the reason why we were able to use it is because we lost our housing project through a referendum. The local neighbors shut it down. And so we're to the point where we think we can make this work. Um, and so you kind of then look at the dynamics of the 20% affordable, the prevailing wage. And, you know, again, it's a, the housing type you built. So in San Jose, building a million-dollar small unit is actually acceptable, not in Fresno, not in Sacramento. Um, so it really comes down to neighborhood by neighborhood. But we do see some opportunity there. Again, it's our more higher-end builders than our entry level, like Lennar and KB, who build your first home. These are more specialty builders. We see a lot of different areas that work in this space, but part of it, the older they are, the more costs because of, we have to put solar, we have to put different insulation, we have to put different water systems in. If it's a newer building, like the Salesforce building, that in itself might be easier, still expensive, than an older building where you really have to restart all over again. So we're exploring it kind of building by building, community by community, and so we do see an opportunity, again, more in the urban core, more in high-end housing, and so we're, we're giving it a shot. Again, this is, law has only been in effect for a few months, um, but it, we're exploring it as a way too. to my Yimby colleague when a city says, no, 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 the question is can this be used as a, a leverage tool to local government saying, well, wait a second, you have to say yes. Um, no, they don't have to, but that's our hope that they would be more open to saying yes. I I, uh, I texted a bunch of people this morning when I got this question. I was like, oh, do we have any numbers? Uh, and the answer is no. Um, but somebody was willing to make up a number for me, okay. um, which was 5,000 in downtown San Francisco. And I was like, why do you say that? And he was like, because it's a nice round number. Um, I think it's very hard to know because additionally, like, I, let's take this room, right? The bathroom's down the hall. 
If we legalized uh, group housing, if we legalized uh, student dorms, for instance, um, that would mean you could have a whole bunch of uh, units in here. They would be perfectly comfortable sharing the bathroom. You, you know, the different kinds of projects that you might be able to do have really different scales, what kind of numbers you could possibly unlock. And especially when you're talking about retrofitting old buildings, it's really hard before you get into the guts of the individual project to know really what's possible there. Um, how much are you going to have to tear down existing uh, structures versus rebuilding? How expensive is it going to be to maintain the facade? All this kind of stuff. So, you know, if you want made up numbers, I got 5,000. Um, but it is very hard to know. I think in general, when we look at, and right now there's like almost 200 housing bills that are being submitted, every one of them is taking a different small bite. And when we look at our problem in California of our chronic housing shortage, I, I, I'm on team big bill, right? The YIMBY movement, we had SB 50, we wanted the big honkin' bill that is going to, in one fell swoop, potentially solve California's housing shortage. I would say people were not game for it yet. Uh, and so we're going to have to take smaller bites. Um, and I think this is one that should be a politically easy smaller bite to take um, because everybody's talking about revitalizing downtowns and having a 15-minute city where you can walk to work. And that seems like a no-brainer if we can just enact it. Well, I think uh, hopefully I have some numbers that might resonate with folks. Um, when we were working on SB6, uh, we worked with Mapcraft, uh, Urban Footprint, and Econ Northwest, who did an analysis of SB6 and its parameters mm -hmm. and how impactful it may be. I think it's a pretty fair analysis, of course. You know, that's subject to how folks want to look at it. But, you know, they did a feasibility study on available parcels. And, you know, with a conservative estimate, there's probably about 315,000 parcels or about 374,000 acres that could be developed under a bill like SB6, potentially AB 2011, which I do want to clarify. I know we've talked about office um, to residential conversion, but we're talking about commercially zoned parcels that may be office or retail. Um, and so it's not just what you see that's been built. There are commercial parcels that may not have anything on it that now in July for the first time, once these bills go into effect, can be used for housing without a zoning change, which is a massive time save and, and financial benefit. Um, so anyways, their estimate that if all of those parcels were developed, which obviously won't be the case, that's two million units um, that could hit, hit the market. So I would say that's a pretty massive dent in California's um, supply crisis. And two million statewide? Right, statewide, okay. yes. Okay. I'm gonna hold him to that. But I, I did wanna make a quick, quick point for those in the audience. He's reading off of his computer, and I got papers coming out of my ears here. It's okay. No giggling. Thank whatever, you. whatever, whatever works out. exactly. So there are some numbers, but it's it's really uh, speculative. Uh, first thing I want to say is, um, a city like San Francisco, this this is going to be expensive, but they can't afford not to rebuild their downtown uh, business district. If it continues the way it is, it's going to be an urban blight. And really, the policy issues have to be revolved, resolved around that because they can't not do it. It's, it's very expensive to do it. It's probably more expensive in the long run not to do it. So they really are looking for ways to do it. I would recommend everybody here take a look at the Gensler uh, Architectural, International Architectural Firm. They're really heavy in this space, coming up with some interesting stuff. I, I glanced through it this morning. They did a study in San Francisco in the downtown area 
and they found 36 buildings that might fit the needs or get complicated. The more you talk about it, outside windows, blah, blah, blah. It's very complicated, but it's doable. Uh, they said of the 36 they studied in the downtown business district that are losing their, uh, you know, the, the, the paying uh, customers, about 12 of them might lend themselves to this. It's not an ins insignificant number. I, I, when you add up all the possibilities of all the commercial spaces in every place, it, but it's different than what we're talking about specifically for uh, office uh, concentrations. There's a whole series of situations with these buildings where they have you know, mortgages and no tenants. And that's all gonna come to a head pretty soon. And so there's gonna be some real urgency to this. But one of the things they say in their study, first of all, about one third of the buildings they looked at, which were the ones that were prime candidates, would be capable of this kind of conversion. And they, they've done this in other cities with the same sort of results. About a one third of a fairly select group of buildings in the concentrated areas of downtowns uh, you know, that's the way it went from the post-war era to concentrating the business districts. But they estimate in San Francisco, I believe, uh, who needs 82,000 new units by 2031, um, 10,000 a year. Uh, I, I've lost the number here, my apologies. But the one thing that they do say in here, which is really what we should be talking about, is they quote this... Uh, paragraph, making it pencil through policy. So what are the policies that you need to bring either benefits to the developers or bring the costs down? Because in the certain areas that we're talking about, it has to be done. It's a question of how, uh, you know, the legal issues we're dealing with here. I think the bit, this bill will pass, it'll be modified, but the urgency on housing is so big that everybody wants to try everything that's possible. It will fall in the lap of the developers who have to make it pencil out. And that's where the rubber hits the road. We could talk about it, how easy, how hard it is, but if there's no money to be made in any way, shape, or form, the government has to step in and subsidize it. That's when the questions really get tough. Okay. Um, so sort of speaking on the topic of prices, I, I mean, or the cost of it, will this, you know, should everything go okay or, you know, whatever might shake out with this type of proposal, but what, what would the impact be on the housing market price for those who are, you know, looking to live in a place like San Francisco, for example? More numbers. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I know. <laughs> We're speaking in hypotheticals. Does any, I mean, would this, would this help the renter's market or the housing market? help. I mean, I think, you know, if you dropped 5,000 units in, San, in downtown San Francisco, it, you know, prices would drop a little bit. And it's very hard to know what that little bit would be because it's also over the course of five years and what's happening to the jobs market and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there, hopefully the Turner Center does another beautiful glossy study and, and you know, they do a good job kind of trying to estimate what the cost is going to be. But I do think that that key, the RENA number um, that Dan brought up is really important, that we know what the cost of not doing everything to achieve those 82,000 units that San Francisco needs. Um, we know that that is going to mean a catastrophe for the city. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, maybe let's use my made-up number of 5,000 for San Francisco, you know, that is actually a very important piece of the puzzle because they are really, in every city in California, is struggling to figure out how they're going to hit their housing production goals. And so 
adding another tool to the toolkit. Um, is this one bill going to unlock everybody's RENA numbers? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I think the biggest ding you could say to our bill is, as a YIMBY is I'm always saying like, well, we can't just build downtown. We have to build in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And does this like indulge the fantasy that some anti-housing people might have that, oh, well, maybe we really could just build downtown. No, I'm here to tell you, no, we cannot just build downtown. We're going to have to build in every neighborhood in addition to converting these buildings. We should see this as a small piece of the puzzle, a great opportunity, but not going to be, you know, and let's call it a, a critical drop in the bucket. You know, a lot of drops in a bucket make a full bucket. Just on the pricing side, um, this is not, you know, there's just Jeffrey's point. There's two ways to look at this. Are you converting this building into housing? Are you converting a commercially zoned piece of land into housing? And those are two different price points, substantially different. We have not found attainability price-wise through reconstruction. I mean, everyone here has touched on it. I'll just say it again. If you go to downtown San Francisco and build, there's people there who can afford it, but that's not middle-class housing for Californians, maybe for San Franciscans, but not for mm -hmm. Californians. So the other piece, when you, you know, I did the builder math this morning with our builder who's doing this in San Jose, 20% affordable is going to add $30 million in additional cost. Prevailing wage is going to add 30% on the vertical. We already do prevailing wage on the horizontal. Horizontal is you know, asphalt and sidewalks, verticals going up with sticks and bricks. So those are two components. So we will we'll work to build this. This is not a, you know, a school teacher and a firefighter married buying a home group. This is Google, <laughs> this is Facebook, this is Apple, um, engineers and executives, but there's nothing wrong with those people having a house. I'm just saying this type of construction, when you have those two price points, means that you're building you know, a nicer, more expensive home than you would if you're trying to build down the street here in Elk Grove or Roseville, that's gonna be a third the price of this product. Again, you know, it is a drop in the bucket. <clears throat> Everybody needs housing, so we support this effort. Um, but again, this is not gonna deal with people who are trying to buy their first home and are making it under $150,000. It just, we haven't seen it pencil out yet. That doesn't mean we shouldn't build it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It's just this isn't the attainability for the middle class housing concept. That's done through Greenfield, through master plan communities, through larger uh, construction projects that don't have that complexity and don't have that underlying cost requirement. So again, positive step, but if we're looking at what most Californians can afford, this isn't that product. I, I do want to push back just a little bit. I think largely you're entirely correct. And there is an opportunity that we want to make more available to do, you know, group housing, dorm style living as well in these office constructions. I mean, a really cool thing would be to take an old, interesting office building and turn it into a new school and to have, you know, a few stories of school buildings and classes on your first few steps, you know. New York has a bunch of colleges that are like this. And if you allow mixed use, you can get these kind of interesting dorms and schools and things happening. Um, you can also get, you know, cheap. When, when I was single, I would have loved to be able to afford to live in a dorm style. You know, I lived in a dorm style apartment with six other people, you mm -hmm. know, like my bathroom was down the hall. It was messy. It was, you know, a whole thing. That's it how I been. feel now and right. I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I, I think we really, we, we have a lot of preconceived notions about the kinds of people who live in group housing. And I think we really need to tear that down and think about this is great workforce housing. Um, you know, this is housing that not just single people do live in today. Um, and that group housing is a perfectly wonderful uh, source of housing, um, especially for subsidized affordable, for nonprofits that might want to do some of this housing as well. If we just open up the possibilities and sort of make different options possible with this kind of building, we might see some really creative reuse. Okay. Can I take another Absolutely. So, um, there's a whole many things going around here that are pertinent to this. Uh, Dan's point on you know, trying to make this pencil out, even with 20% uh, affordability and prevailing wages makes a lot of sense. The premise here, though, however, is that they're being given some benefit by not having to go through the normal process that they have to go through, which is quite costly, uh, legally, time-wise, et cetera, et cetera, makes it very hard. The real question is, what level of change in, that give uh, developers and cities the ability to do this needs to be done to make it come down below the high affordability. I mean, the, 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 the bill we're talking about on the uh, conversion here has a 10% threshold of low or moderate cost housing. And so if you're a developer, you're going to say, well, if I have to do 10%, I'm going to do as much moderate as I possibly can. If you want more low, you have to find other ways to bring those costs down. And so the part of the problem we're facing is not just a housing crisis. The flip side of the housing crisis is, the, of course, the housing costs have gone up enormously, but wages have been pretty stagnant. They're only beginning to start to perk up a little bit, and the Federal Reserve is about to put the squash on that by raising interest rates and killing a housing market. But the cost of housing wasn't driven by the, by the wages, but it put everybody out of the ability to buy the housing that's being developed. So this, if once the government steps in and says, okay, we'd have a policy to bring those costs down, but we do want to protect the wage base of the workers in that industry. That's where we come in, and that's where the uh, nuanced position, which is normally teeth gnashing, hair pulling, you know, uh, and knife fighting, etc. It's uh, it's a question of balancing what the developers get and what kind of housing you need. The governor, I think, pointed out we needed two and a half million units by not too long from now, but a million and a half of those are low and ultra low income units. They're not being built by the private market because there's no money involved. I mean, you got to subsidize them. And when you subsidize them, you had to you add other public policies, equity, wages, etc. Uh, that's the that's the rub of the problem. Okay. Well, that leads us to the. Or Jeffrey, did you want to jump in? I would like to jump in real quick because I think we're not talking um, about on this issue what is tangible for most people that live in the state, and that's the cost that is required to buy a house if you're interested in home ownership in particular. I think we all know the housing cost crisis that's happening is because we don't have the supply that's keeping up with our population growth. Um, median home price at this point is over $750,000, meaning you've got to, as an individual or a family, make at least $200,000 to not be cost burdened by your living expenses. And we're unlocking for the first time, I think, over the last few years, tools to help expand our ability to do infill development because California is built out. Our environmental laws prevent us from 
you know, more, um, you know, suburban growth, which I think, you know, I generally is, think is a good idea. Um, but until we build more homes, that price isn't going to come down. And while I don't have numbers on that, I mean, I'm sure there's folks that are speculating what that might cost. Anything in, is going to be helpful to that end. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty here. What are the major holdups for these kinds of projects? Whoever wants to start, jump in. I'll start quickly because okay. I think that's a question that's better suited for uh, yeah. folks on the ground. Uh, for me, it's when you're running a, a policy on this issue and as things are negotiated, you get um, requested to delay your implementation of your bill, right? AB 2011 and SB 6 don't go in effect until July, and so we've let six months pass without you know, developers being able to tap into this tool and, and start building. So things like that and the policy side, I think. So, so the project that I was working on this morning with our, this happens to be our chairman. So, I mean, they've hired lawyers. They think they'll spend about 500000 in legal costs to maneuver through 2011. So they've budgeted that. Um, even though it's, you know, makes it by right and easier and less CEQA. Because that is a really, really key component. CEQA is a pariah for building in California. Um, it doesn't work, it doesn't protect the environment, and it doesn't keep the cost of housing down. But even if you get through CEQA, which is really important, um, you still have to get to yes with the local government, with the neighbors and NIMBYs and others. Um, so just the legal cost of analyzing 2011 and trying to implement it, I mean, they're planning to move on July 1st. If they can, just that component is real. So, I mean, there's when you look at how to get to yes on these issues, this is a big slice of the negative pie of how you build a home in California, but there's still a lot of local government issues. And if a local government wants to build, it's amazing. You can get it done if they don't, or they have another agenda, or the local neighbors say, I want this just to be a piece of dirt, let's turn it into a park. Um, not realizing the person's already invested $30 million in the land. Um, you know, that's, that's the challenge is there are still other hurdles and steps to go through beyond what 2011 and SB6 cover that still require you to spend money, time, and energy getting the yes. The other issue on 2011 and SB6 is it's untested. And we've seen local governments say, you know, no, I don't care. You, we will win lawsuits. This is the city of Martinez. We have won lawsuits that say the court, the judge orders the construction of the home. The city refuses to give a permit. The only thing that's left is to jail the city council members. And if a builder wants to build in that community for a decade after that, they're not going to do that. I mean, so that's the dynamic of, that's just one city that doesn't want homes. Ontario wants homes. They just approved 50,000. Look at what Riverside and San Bernardino are building. It's like 20 times more than the East Bay. So if you want to do it, it's doable. So there are other components to getting to yes that are beyond the bills, but the bills at least take a slice of that negative pie, take it off the table and make it easier. But that's, the, that's where you still run into the, the NIMBY side and just the local government who has a different agenda. Or ran on, I mean, let's look at Huntington Beach, the poster child, our dear friend, Mr. Strickland, mm -hmm. up for growth Republican, ran on no more homes in Huntington Beach and got overwhelmingly elected. So even if we have the ability to build in Huntington Beach, Mr. Strickland says, no, all we can do is sue. And that's not, even if SB6 and AB2011 say we can get to yes, if you ran on no more homes, and got overwhelmingly elected, you can fight that forever. And you know we'll eventually give up, uh, eventually go bankrupt, we'll eventually move to Ontario and build a home and make some money. So that's the dynamic of the other half of getting to yes beyond these two good bills. I think you've outlined pretty well the, the 
different barriers. Um, and I, I do think it's important to see the legislation as part of this sort of ecosystem of implementation and the legal framework and shout out to Attorney General Rob Bonta, who is currently attempting to drop the hammer on Huntington Beach. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of how real are our laws is a really important question, I think, to be asking ourselves in California. How much do we believe in the rule of law when it comes to housing. Um, we're having this kind of debate right now of is do, do cities have to do what state legislatures have told them to do? Uh, I'm on team yes, um, but <laughs> that is something that people are still seemingly arguing about. Um, and it's something that we're glad to see the attorney general really taking a firmer stance on. Um, it's why we have a lawsuit arm, Yimby Law, that is going out and suing cities and getting them into compliance. Um, but in order for all of these, you know, various planning departments, planning commissions, city councils to start believing that they have to follow the law, we're going to have to, I think, pass harsher laws that create real consequences. You know, I, I don't, uh, I'm for putting the city council in jail, but, um, you know, I think that there is that, that this kind of what's the consequence going to be. You know, right now, um, you know, not to get into sort of this parallel issue around housing elements, but we're kind of already there. Right now, um, you know, cities and towns have their housing goals, and the cities that have put forward uh, crappy plans that were laughed out of town uh, are seeing that maybe they're going to have to do um, builders' remedy projects, which is, again, another untested thing. If a, a developer puts forward um, a sort of a, a bigger building that is not in compliance with local zoning, they're supposed to have to say yes. That's going to have to fight its way through the courts almost certainly, and that's going to lose time and that's going to drive up costs. And I think the legislature should know, and I think they do know, that they cannot declare victory yet, that we're going to have to keep chipping away at this. We're going to have to keep cracking down because this shift is a, is a really fundamental dynamic shift that is, has to happen in California. Are we going to allow our wealthiest enclaves to pull up the ladder of opportunity to say no over and over again in the name of, you know, cities' rights and deny people opportunities? Or are we going to say that is not in line with California's values? We are a whole state. We are making decisions communally for the benefit of all. We are not going to allow this collective action problem disaster where Beverly Hills and Huntington Beach say, screw you to the rest of the state. We've got ours and we're not letting you in. That's got to stop. And, and the legislature has got to consistently say enough is enough. We have to be a state where people can thrive. You know, or we could just be like, let's not have an economy and, and sort of go down the tank. I, I, that is option B. I don't recommend it. Well, uh, you are getting to the nub of a lot of these problems. But there, there's a whole concept here that for the bill we're talking about is the development, I mean, the issue of density, versus urban sprawl or suburban sprawl or whatever. There are opportunities to build housing projects in areas that have land. Uh, they're not simple. There's a variety of issues that have to be dealt with, but they can be done from the ground up. I think that major, a major component of what we're talking about is how are we going to reconfigure more density in a way that's livable. I think the bill that we're talking about is a very good bill. It will not solve the housing pro, pro, uh, crisis, 
but it will help make the city livable and affordable for some people and attractive, uh, as they say, taking a, de a, a business core that's going dark, turning it into a 24-7 livable community. Sounds wonderful, can be done, it's expensive. Uh, maybe we should go out and build all the housing in areas that don't have any housing, but then we gotta build roads, we gotta build schools, we gotta start the whole infrastructure conversation again. It's not simple, it's not gonna be dealt with simply. Uh, what I wanna point to again is the Gensler studies. Uh, they have a whole series of measures and they're gonna be step-by-step -step measures. There's no silver bullet, but I will tell you the first one is streamlining CEQA. Most of the bills that you're seeing coming out will be by right, which essentially uh, streamlines CEQA. And if there's a housing, the, the, the pressure here is the, uh, the housing uh, numbers, whatever they're called, arena numbers. If you don't meet your arena numbers, which very, very few areas, particularly uh, urban areas are meeting, uh, then you're going to be, uh, the state's going to step in and force you to make these, these changes. They really have to do with incentives, money, et cetera. That's the hard thing. But I want to tell you, the first thing is streamlining CEQA. This is a Gensler report, but it also says the use of AB 2011 labor standards which is the part that we haven't gotten to and we'll have to do for another day, we support all of these programs that will actually add to more housing. Hey, if it's more expensive housing, what's new there? If you have money, you can buy a wonderful house. Where it's gonna be, that's a different story. But if you don't have money, you're in deep trouble. So the issue is how do we build multifamily, uh, multi-income uh, housing that's livable, that's close to the job, and how do we raise the wages in society so that there's a city that has people who are not just rich and poor. We're beginning to see that, or we've been way beyond seeing that. What's driving the NIMBYism, from my perspective, is the natural, uh, you know, we moved out here to have a nice standard of living and now there's homeless people next door and there's people who are, well, that's what's driving it. So if we don't figure out how to do affordable, ultra affordable, more densely put together housing in places where we have the infrastructure, yeah, you're gonna be going to Huntington Beach and say your view of the ocean is gonna be blocked by that 30 story low income, uh, 30 -story low -income housing development. Hell no. You know, they're gonna to fight to the death. We can do it, but it has to be done in a nuanced fashion. Thank you very much, Tim, for that uh, introduction of me, because it's not happening. It's all or nothing in every bill. And I gotta go back to the, it's the Haney bill, I don't remember the number, but it's 10% affordable or moderate income. Okay, so that's not really quite the answer. Will it get done? Will there be some nice, beautiful condominiums built for people who have six to seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars? You bet there will be, and we're for that. But it doesn't solve the problem. Okay, and, and that's that's a good transition because I do want to ask about Assemblyman Matt Haney's bill um, to help with some of these barriers with office to housing conversion. What what challenges, if any? does that bill face as it moves through the legislative process? I'm, it's gonna be perfect. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're, um, we are, actually what's been kind of fun is since we came out with it, most of the complaints have been, oh, you didn't include this, you didn't include this, you didn't include this. And we're seeing a lot of people 
adding to the bill saying here are other problems that office to housing construction faces that we want you to include in this bill. Um, obviously the big elephant in the room is labor. Um, and I can say I'm very excited about uh, the potential for a big deal in the style of 2011, um, that I think there are these kinds of, and I'm sure we'll dig more into that later, um, but I think that there's such a great opportunity um, to see these kinds of grand bargains that then have to actually work in practice, to um, the other Danny's point, um, that they have to then uh, be implementable and pencil and then upheld with rule of law, all of that sort of complexity to it. Um, but right now we're at this sort of early stage with this bill and many others um, where I, th I think most people recognize that this could be a no-brainer if we can just add in what needs to be added in in order to make office-to-housing conversions more feasible. The biggest complaint I think we're getting right now is that it doesn't deal with the uh, building code half of it enough. Um, and there are other bills right now, I, I don't remember off the top of my head what the numbers are, but um, that are trying to get more emphasis on, because uh, right now our building codes are not entirely just about keeping us safe. They also have a lot of other nonsense in there. Um, and so there is, I think, going to need to be an effort to address that half of it as well. Um, but I you know, if you have an idea to make it easier to, to convert office to housing, please let us know, see if we can stick it in there, because we are really trying to get through there and, and remove all these barriers. Um, I do think people will find uh, it hard to talk about reducing the inclusionary rate, which is a big thing people debate a lot, um, down to 10% for these projects. Um, you know, I think that these projects are really hard to make pencil. And so going a little bit lower on how much we require in inclusionary makes a lot of sense. Um, in San Francisco, which has had the largest, uh, the highest inclusionary rate uh, of like, I think it's 24% now, um, the Technical Advisory Committee, the city economist that's now meeting, is saying to San Francisco that there is no rate of inclusionary that pencils and that all housing is being stopped because the costs are too high. And so going down to 10% in light of that doesn't seem as controversial, I'm hoping. Uh, knock on wood, I think that'll be something we argue about, but we're gonna have to have a real conversation about, we need real sources of funding for subsidized affordable housing. And relying on inclusionary to fund subsidized affordable housing is never going to address California's need. We need to get much more serious about deep levels of affordability and investing in nonprofit subsidized affordable housing. Um, and the inclusionary is a little bit of a sideshow in my opinion. Um, it's, it's not addressing the actual needs people have to build um, for the lowest income Californians. Laura, I think you mentioned there's something like 200 new housing bills this year. Um, so I have no idea what Assemblymember Haney is doing in this bill yet. I've got, uh, you know, <laughs> thank you. Uh, the Senator has four of her own, you know, that we're, we're working on, but knowing the Assemblymember, he's a very pro-housing member. We've the privilege of working uh, with him on a, a, a affordable uh, preservation and uh, acquisition bill this year. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about it, um, especially as somebody who's been in this mix for the last three years. I wish you the best of luck. Um, because it uh, is, a, is a challenge. And I, I kind of want to maybe speak a little bit candidly. There's been comments about, you know, s sort of a, a labor bargain that happened last year, but that's not really true. 
Um, there are two very different standards in, in the two big bills from, from last year, 6 and 2011. Um, lots of no, uh, attempts at negotiating, um, but ultimately, you know, there was one group that had their labor uh, policy in their bill and, and another that had their labor policy in the bill. So hopefully, I really think that part of maybe one holdup that we, you know, kind of talked about earlier is that there's not been consensus developed between how we protect the workers that are building the homes so they can also afford to live in the homes that are being built as well. So hopefully we can solve that this year. Dan, you want to go? Yeah, just, just quickly on this, um, this thing is a good bill for San Francisco. I'm not sure how it will work outside or maybe downtown LA. The building code issue is a big issue. Um, I think a lot of people realize in our zeal to be the planet savers, we're putting people on the street. And so that's kind of that, that sweet spot we try to find of yeah, we do have the most seismically safe, fire retardant, water reducing, energy efficient homes in the world. We just don't build enough of them. So um, we build about 120,000 units a year, notwithstanding the hundreds of bills we've passed. In 1963, um, I was the toddler, I was actually a newborn, we built 331,000 homes when we had 14, 14 million Californians. Last year we have like 39 million and change Californians. We built 120,000 last year. So we're still... And can I add, people still live in those older homes. Correct. You know, we didn't say, oh, those homes are so dangerous, everyone must evacuate, right? People are still living in those homes. And so that, I, just to, to give you more ammunition if you need it. So that's, I mean, that's our challenge is that we've passed, if you read all the press releases of all the great authors, and many of these bills we've supported, we should have built like another five and a half million homes in the last six years. We've built about 400,000. So press releases are great. We love the rhetoric. We love the support for housing. But the reality of the fact is that we haven't got out of our way. Back to the Haney bill, it does have the labor issue dynamic of skilled and trained versus prevailing. That's just an issue of cost as to who wins that fight. But the code issue is a real issue. Right now, there's this great excitement about moving to all electric. We think it should be move to decarbonization. There's this concept of hydrogen. There's this concept of renewable natural gas. Um, there's other options. The reason why we say that is we can't even find the products that we're being mandated to use because this thing called supply chain. So, you know, right now, transformer, those little gray things on top of your telephone poles, if you have above ground electricity, takes us about 15 months to get one of those. So when you move to all electric, you need one transformer for 20 homes if it's mixed fuel. You need one for seven homes if it's all electric. Great idea. It's just there are consequences to cost delay. That one-year delay will cost a housing project millions of dollars in additional interest payments for the loan because it's actually in construction. So there's just these nuances that people don't catch because it all sounds good. And solar is great. We should have solar and batteries. Well, solar and batteries is about 42000 a home. Solar now we've got from 50,000 down to 7,000 after the last 15 years, but you put in two of Mr. Elon Musk's battery storage systems, it's about 40,000 more. Is that a bad idea? No, it's an awesome idea. It's just 40,000 more. So those are the things that we're trying to piece together with middle-class housing, school teachers, firefighters. That's our market, and that's the Haney Bill will focus on the San Francisco market. There, I don't know, 1% of the school teachers live in San Francisco, half a percent, they all commute in. So it doesn't solve that problem, but it does solve parts of the San Francisco problem. So uh, let me point out that the numbers Dan gave are absolutely correct. Housing was built, well, I think you said you were born in 1963, you're just a youngster, uh, but 
330,000 something homes a year and we're down to 125. But in 1963, that was part of the, the tail end of the post-war housing boom. The wages in the housing industry were middle-class blue-collar wages. The wages have not kept up in the last few years, let's say 50. Uh, the housing construction workforce of over 300,000 workers uh, is in the construction industry, the lowest paid portion of the construction industry, the highest level of, uh, no disrespect to any builders or whatever, it's a tough industry, but wage violations, the Department of Industrial Relations calls it a crime, no, not a crime scene, rampant, we call it a crime scene, rampant, uh, you know, uh, wage violations. The construction workers in housing are probably equal to the amount of union workers uh, who are building public works and other things, but the subsidy that they are living off of, it's about a three and a half billion dollar public subsidy to the workforce in the housing industry through social benefit payments, through the health care that they're not getting. It's really a complicated uh, thing that workforce is barely surviving. So we have a wage crisis and a housing crisis. Uh, it, definitely has to change. It will, the cities will figure out if they want to just tear down all their buildings and have nothing or they want to have a vital city. It's going to happen one way or another, but it's going to be expensive. So I'm going to leave it pretty much at that. I had probably had another, oh, well, the, the labor issue for a minute here. And actually, that was my next question. Oh, and okay. I'm, I'm just, okay. this is going to be my last question because I know we're going to take audience questions in the last oh. uh, few minutes that we have here. But um, if we, I know this is a loaded question, it's the elephant in the room, but the influence, the role that labor plays in, in this kind of project. Hello, I was about to get into that. So it's very complicated for people who are not involved in it, but the way we see it is there's two sort of things being discussed. From the developer point of view, I believe it's the same cost because both of them are what they call prevailing wages, which is very often the, the union standard. But the one, uh, the one that we've promoted, and that was in AB 2011, allows for the existing workforce, the 300,000 or so construction workers who are underpaid, uh, overworked in many cases and abused in other cases, to make a decent wage, but they don't have to be replaced because the workforce is not there, the union workforce is not there to replace them. So our nomaker or whatever you call it, we don't have that clever phrase, but it was in the um, middle Affordable Housing and High Road Jobs Act. So high road jobs are what we call our 2011 prevailing wage standard, health care over 50 units, use of apprentices where possible, but more importantly, in many ways to really change the nature of the industry, we have self-enforcement capabilities for labor management, federally recognized labor management programs, because wage enforcement in the housing industry is virtually non-existent. It happens, but your chances of being inspected by a labor commissioner or a deputy labor commissioner as a, as a, as a non-union contractor or a union contractor is once every 300 years. It's the wild west of the construction market. The public works market is much, much more uh, uh, overseen by both union contracts and the fact that it's government protection prevailing wages. The high road, that's our perspective. The skilled and trained, and you'll probably hear more about that. Are you dealing with that in any, okay. The skilled and trained has the same wage protections, but it also has a much more restrictive 
requirement that you have to hire people who have been graduated from an apprentice program, which is virtually none of the 300,000 workers in the, in the housing industry. And it gets beyond that. Either you've graduated or you can prove that you've worked 5,000 hours in your industry. In the housing industry, that's impossible. There's such a, a, a glut of, of uh, uh, no uh, wage abuse in terms of uh, even having payroll records. But nobody keeps five years of payroll records. I virtually ask any of you if you could dig up your paperwork. So it, it really is an exclusive process versus what we consider to be an inclusive. Those workers out there in the housing construction industry, we don't see them as competitive to us. We see them as our future members. But it's up to us to go out there and make them our future members. The only way that can happen is if their wage base is raised so that union contractors can be competitive in that market. There's no way a union contractor can go in there with a bid and beat a non-union contractor who's paying basically minimum wage, even if they're providing some other benefits. It's just not in the cards. So if the wages are raised, on these projects that give benefits to the developers. And I'm not saying that they will do it, because if it doesn't pencil, it doesn't pencil. By the way, that's my position on the Haney bill. I think it'll pass. Whether it'll get used or not, whole nother story. So that's where the wage fight is. And anybody else, you know, maybe we'll get the audience. But it's the same wage, it's the same cost, but we believe ours is reachable because we're using the same workers that are already in that industry, not demanding that they get pushed out and you bring in union workers. That's a very complex sort of nuanced problem. There's just as many non-union construction workers in housing as the total of the union construction workers, more or less, in the state. And you just can't say, you can't do it, we'll all move over there. It's not going to work that way. It's going to take a decade to build this housing, maybe more. It's going to take a decade at least to organize that industry to be a, at least a middle class industry. When I started, back about when Dan was born, uh, people working on the housing, the housing boom, were buying the houses that they were building. That's not the case, even remotely close to the case. And sometimes if they were smart, and a lot of them were, they'd band together and buy a few houses and then become landlords and so on and so forth, but they could afford a home. I don't, I don't think there's a working class uh, a salary out there now that allows you to buy even close to the average cost of a home. And also rentals. I mean, we're, we're getting away from the main course of the Haney Bill, but the rental market. And if you really want to build a middle class, you have to have ownership. That's where the middle class gets their, you know, that's where their wealth comes from, is ownership of the property of the, that they live in, whether it be a rental conversion to a, a ownership or a house. So. Hi, thanks. This is great. Just wondering, this is, I mean, office to uh, house convert or residential housing conversion is not entirely new. What's the experience from other jurisdictions? What lessons can we learn from looking at where they have done it? I mean, the, the biggest thing that we see over and over again is it's expensive. Um, and that each individual housing project becomes this like poster child that they then do analysis on. And then each one is unique, actually. And, you know, you really have to, especially with the older buildings, you have to get into the guts of it and kind of see what's there. Um, the, the thing that I've sort of taken away is that 
when they pass the anything that makes it easier to do these, they don't have a good idea of how many units it's going to unlock ultimately. Um, it also, you know, all the things that we've talked about, the, the permitting makes a big difference. Because these projects are often like right at the edge of feasibility, a lot of the other small things make a big difference in whether the project actually moves forward or not. Um, you know, because they can kind of squeak by with like a little bit of revenue from office potentially. Um, you know, now that might not be the case, um, but in, you know, historic and, and other places that have tried to incentivize converting, um, you also get really cool units. I mean, I, that is the other thing that the photos that are in these case studies are, are really interesting looking uh, buildings that I think, um, you know, I, I want to move. I actually think, and help me out here, Dan. I think the urban cores are going to see this happening, and it's beginning more and more studies. The Gensler thing, please look it up. Uh, but it's really concentrated in the places that where it makes some sense, and even there, it's a limited amount of buildings. But they'll be done because they'll be attractive, which will attract developers, but they're not going to be the answer to the low and ultra-low income housing problem. They're going to be important to keep the cities vibrant, and that's what I think the Haney Bill is all about. So. And you, it's going to be, you know, in the rubric of more affordable housing, but it's more housing in this case. And if you're an urban dweller, I'm from New York, uh, I kind of I like it. But you know, if you have a family, if some kids and stuff, you tend to like want to think about something differently. But if you have to own it, you have to own it if you want to get back in the middle class at some point. Yeah, I just <clears throat> totally agree with both comments. It's expensive. It's beautiful. It's really unique and it's kind of cutting edge, but again, it's a very unique clientele that can afford it. Again, let's just look at this room. You see the cutouts and the cement over there and here? They, they couldn't figure out how to put the electric, so they put it down through the ceiling. You can't drill, I mean, you can drill through cement, but the cost would be probably half a million dollars just to put that line down there. These two supporting braces, this is an original. That's, there's only a handful of people who in labor who are talented enough to do that, so you're gonna pay a real pen, a price for that. It's gorgeous. We love this room. This is modern. It's fun to be in. It's expensive. So it's that's what we've seen. But again, some of those are the landmark buildings of the big cities. So if you have the resources and money, I just want to also say consumers that have kids don't live in them. It's just the So I also want to point out the seismic. Uh, that, that wasn't here in the original program. Not that's not cheap either. So <laughs> if it starts to rattle here, we're probably in good shape. So I think we are pretty close, although I, I did want to throw in one more question uh, that I hope will be very fast because we're close to the end. I'm curious, I, I wanted to run off something that Dan had said earlier today, uh, which is that in Europe, all of our building codes are very unfamiliar. And I'm wondering if there might be uh, an idea of modifying any of the building codes so that something like you had mentioned, like college dorms, like something along those lines uh, might be more possible in California in the future. Is that something that could help address this particular issue of office housing conversion and also maybe the housing, housing issue larger? Is that something that we could look at or is that just off the, off the table? Uh, well, politically, I think we're going to have an argument about it, but I don't think it's off the table at all. And there are a couple bills that I'm really excited about. So this bill is probably not going to do a ton about it, although it is going to allow more mixed use, which starts to get into this more interesting kinds. Um, but I also think that there's a bill that's, I can't remember the number of, but that's going to be directing um, the fire and health safety to reassess 
um, some of our building codes. And I think right now it sort of has to go through this process of pushing our bureaucracy to reassess that I think is extremely necessary. There's also something called single stair reform where we, um, right now we're requiring two full staircases. Um, another thing that office conversions might be able to use is using a fire escape as the second stair, um, which like it's a fire escape. It's called the fire escape. It should be escape from fire stairs, in my opinion. Um, but these kinds of things are definitely needed. I hope that the legislature starts to see these as companion bills um, because we are going to need to address some of these building code concerns as well. People get, you know, they hear changing the building code and they get very afraid. Um, they think, you know, and I, I think this is something that um, a lot of our housing discourse uh, descends into fear very quickly. Um, people get afraid that uh, people who are different than them are going to come live next to them. People get afraid that the building's going to fall over. We've seen, you know, affordable housing and projects in San Francisco right now, you know, they made up that it's a toxic waste dump and suddenly the entire neighborhood's afraid and like fear just permeates the housing discourse and our elected officials and also our leaders have to be able to get folks to be more real about their fears and to not just give in to the fears that they have made up in their minds, but instead to look at the science and say, what is the cost benefit here? What is the analysis telling us that the rational choice is? And not, you know, well, I feel like if I don't have a second staircase, we're all gonna die. Okay, well, the, the math says you're not gonna die. And that in fact, you go into buildings with only one staircase all the time. They were just built before we had this dual staircase so requirement. Can I just, there's a point that we haven't talked about in a long time and it's critical and Dan will get this immediately. Uh, Prop 13 about however long ago was the third rail, it still is, but a lot of fees are tacked onto the housing elements to make up for the fact that the property taxes are not providing what's needed for infrastructure. So when you build a housing, you gotta pay for everything associated with that housing project out there. That stuff would have been covered by civic or other sources that were property tax sourced. We changed that. Development went to retail and commercial because that was the, that's the way to get income for the local cities, not the property tax anymore. The state had to bail everybody out for a while, uh, Prop 13. Everything is gonna be on the table unless we don't wanna solve this problem and there'll be no way we don't wanna solve this problem. It's only gonna get worse. It's not the only one the legislatures have to deal with, but it's the one that's in front of everybody's mind right now. All of it, codes, everything. If there's a code that's not necessary, really for safety, get it out of here. I don't know about the stairs and stuff. I mean, if I live on the side with the stairs, I'm happy. If I live over there, you know, get out of the way. It's like sitting at the airplane, in your airplane, make sure you're on that exit row so nobody's stepping on your head to get out of the plane. All right, I think we have reached our, our moment. Thank you so much to our panelists, to Ashley Zavala for moderating. And thank you for... Uh, the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.